Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. Okay, let's turn to Matthew 18. We're going to get into the Word this morning. We have been in a series... I hope I didn't offend anybody. I know some people are anti-hunting and anti-guns. It, uh, you know what they call a, you know what they call a vegetarian in Africa, bad hunter. It, uh, so God said to Peter, "Rise and eat." And I believe the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God. So, hallelujah. Enough of that, right? Okay, Matthew eighteen. We're. Uh, we are in a series, we've been looking at the concept of the, the church, the ecclesia. And uh, so we've been looking at this. Last week I didn't get into what I was going to get into. I don't know that we'll get there this morning. Uh, there's just something that's lodged in my heart this week I want to look at. But uh, we're looking at the ecclesia and the basilea, or the church and the kingdom. And those in scripture are two distinct entities. Uh, They are not synonymous, they're not interchangeable, Uh, although a lot of believers, a lot of teachers uh, have looked at it that way. I was actually taught that in Bible school, that they were interchangeable. That is not the case. The church and the kingdom are distinct entities. The kingdom is the Lord's reign, it's the king's dominion, therefore the word kingdom. We see that more readily in Spanish, it's it's areno, the reign of God, Uh, God reigns over all things. That doesn't mean that everything that happens is God's will. Because there is a war against His reign. There is a war against His will. That is the nature of sin. Sin is acting contrary to God's will. So therefore, not everything that happens is God's will or there would be no such thing as sin. So there are things that are happening that are contrary to God's will. So when bad things happen to you, don't blame God. Uh, you know, those, not everything that happens is, that comes from the heart of God. Many things that happen are contrary to the will of God, and he put his church here to undo those things. That is our purpose of being here. So the kingdom is the reign of God, it's the king's dominion, whereas the church is the ecclesia, that the Greek word for church is ecclesia, and it's unfortunate that we translate it church. That was because King James, uh, in translating what he called the authorized version, it's a great translation, but there were a couple of words that he had a... There were like, I want to say there were 52 things that he said that they had to do. And one of them was translating the word ecclesia as church. Which comes from the word kirk, which literally means of the Lord. The reason he watered that term down was because it really was contrary to his way of ruling. Because under English rule, the king was the sovereign and he was the king of the church. And the church actually means, the word ecclesia, the assembly of believers, had this connotation of being those who rule. They, there was th- this body of believers that would be called together to legislate the king's dominion. And so the church is a vehicle of the kingdom. A ch- the church is a subsidiary of the kingdom. The, the kingdom of God is the reign, the rule of God, and God is ever expanding his rule. He's moving his rule farther and farther out continually. And we're here to see that happen. And so, as the church, we are the legislative body of the kingdom. Matter of fact, the Greeks, uh, the, the, the culture in which Jesus was teaching, when he snatched that word and used it to communicate this term, when Jesus used that, that the culture in which he was speaking was a Roman Grecian, the Roman Grecian Empire. The Greeks called their supreme court the Ecclesia. The Romans captured this and they took it a little beyond. They took this idea of the legislative body, the ecclesia, and added to it, it was a discipling body. And they would plant ecclesias in nations that they conquered. They conquered by dominion or authority and then they would rule through power. And one of the avenues by which they would do that is they would plant an ecclesia in the, the domain that they had gained a foothold. And then through that, this legislative body would not only legislate the wishes 
of the emperor. They would also teach the local people. So they were to reculturize them. They were a teaching center. It would be a, a uh, the, the ecclesia were those who would disciple nations. The fact is, Jesus never told us to disciple people. He said disciple nations. We're to make disciples in nations. But the, the discipleship was of these cultures. We're to shift culture. And so in discipling culture, the ecclesia would win them over. Because the idea was that for, for so long that these conquering kingdoms would go on and conquer a kingdom. And then the kingdom would rebel. And so what they did is they planted outposts of the kingdom called ecclesias that would then begin to transform the way they looked at things so that they would become Roman in their mindset. So they would no longer want to break off from Rome because they had become Roman. And you take that understanding and you begin to understand why Jesus planted churches in Ankeny. That we are the legislative body of believers. Not, we're not the only one. We're, there is the, the church in Ankeny, just as there was the church in Ephesus. And in the church in Ankeny, there are many different expressions. There is uh, Prairie, Prairie Ridge across the street. There's Lutheran Church of Hope, that little church plant down the street. There's uh, you know, different expressions, wonderful expressions of the body of Christ in town here. We're a blessed city to have so many great expressions of the church. Each one has their own little flavor, their own little uh, expression of the kingdom, and therefore their own mandates, but we all labor together just as no one person is the church. We've talked about this. You're not the church. The me is never the church, it's a we. You can't be the church. You can be a believer. You can be a child of God. You can be a son of God. There's, all, there's a whole list of things in Scripture that you can be by yourself. But one you cannot be by yourself is the church. You've got to hook up with another. You've got to, I can't use that term anymore. You've got to connect with another believer. Uh, if, ask someone under 25 what that means. And you won't know why I stumble over that. Yeah, you've, got to, you've got to connect with another believer to convene the ecclesia of the church. And so, when we, we are the church, then we're the legislative body. Now, here's what I've been asking the Lord about this week. It's, it's fascinating to me. and it's, I don't have the full answer yet. I've, I've got some ideas, okay? So I'm just going to share my heart this morning. It's interesting that what Jesus emphasized in his teaching was the basilia, or the kingdom. There is only two times, three times really, in the Gospels that the word ecclesia is used. Isn't that surprising? Only three times in all the Gospels. And all of them take place in Matthew, and they take place in the span of two chapters. Once... In Matthew 16, and twice in Matthew 18. And the twice in Matthew 18 is in the same body of material. So there's only two times, or three times, three, two settings that this concept of the church was mentioned by Jesus. Yet he talked about the kingdom a lot. And the kingdom was spoken of a lot in re- reference to Jesus. It says that he came preaching on the kingdom. That John came preaching on the kingdom. That Jesus taught his disciples to preach on the kingdom. He taught them to heal. And then as a precursor to say, go, he said, go into cities, preach, find sick people, heal them, and then tell them the kingdom of God has come upon them. That was the gospels. Then you go into the epistles, and the epistles has much less usage of the word basilea and a whole lot more usage of the word ecclesia the the, the epistles the writings of the apostles uh, speak much less about the kingdom and much more about the church isn't that intriguing that begs the question why why is it that Jesus emphasized the kingdom and the apostles emphasized the church And then, furthermore, we need to ask ourselves, why, when Jesus emphasized the church, both times it was in reference to dealing with evil? See, it's not that way in the epistles. When Paul talks about the church, he says the body of Christ, 
or the church is the body, the fullness of him. I mean, that, that's a power-packed little statement there. The church is his body. It's the physical expression of the heavenly man. That he is the head of the body, but we are the body of Christ. And together, we express the life of God in the earth. But it doesn't necessarily tie it in with dealing with evil. Now, there's connotations to that. You know, you get in. Uh, the, the verse I just quoted was chapter 1. The last, cha- last two verses in Ephesians, by chapter 6, he's talking about spiritual warfare and dealing with principalities and the powers in the heavenly realms. So it is the church that deals with this cosmic evil, but it doesn't directly define the church in reference to evil like Jesus does. It's fascinating to me. I want you to get this. I hope it's fascinating to you. That when Jesus talked about this all-important entity known as the church, the body of Christ, the ecclesia of God, the called out ones, the, the, the legislators of heaven, the outpost of the kingdom, when he talked about it, it was in reference to dealing with evil twice. The first time is Matthew 16, where Jesus takes them. It's, it's where we began our series. Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi and takes them to the mouth of what was known as the gates of hell. This, this cave where there was human sacrifice and animal sacrifice. It's where the Jordan River originates and it comes out of there. And people didn't want to go there because uh, the, the, it was known as an entry point of hell. That hell had access to this realm of the earth through that entry point. Now, modern people look at that and chuckle, isn't that sweet? Isn't that cute? They're, you know, they're just all their, their, you know, they're all this hocus pocus stuff that they bought into because they weren't as enlightened as we are in our scientific age. And they would look at us and say, aren't you cute? Who's being naive here? Because the human sacrifice that took place there did open something in the spirit. This was an extremely evil place. There were grotesque uh, sexual statues out in the open. Can you imagine growing up in the city? You got your little kids, your little three, four, five, six-year-old kids. And they have to walk by and see these grotesque sexual pornographic statues out in the marketplace. And the kids are just being raised in such an environment that they're, they're forced to be subjected to this and begin to connect dots and, and understand things that their minds were, were never meant to understand at that little age. But that was the culture. That was the, that was the effects of this place literally being a gate of hell. That it literally was an entry point for hell to invade a region and to infect people's lives. And it was there that Jesus chose to introduce this word. He didn't invent the word. It wasn't a new word to him. It was a new word in their religious culture. Jesus reached in, again, like he so often did, into Roman Grecian culture, using kingdom concepts, concepts of the Roman Empire that, and the Grecian Empire that precipitated that. He reached in and he said, this is the word I'm going to use to express what my people together, when they gather in my name, this is what they are. And he said, I'm going to build something, and he called it an ecclesia. And it was right there in that spot, this place of such darkness and just perversion. And Jesus went way out of his way. I mean, they, they, this was a long trip by foot, so he could go to this place that most good Jewish people wouldn't go. And he took them there, and he said, he said guys, who, who do you say that I am? It's time that you give me your statement. You've walked with me for some time now. Who do you say that I am? Well, first he said, who do people say that I am? What's the rumor mill? I said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. He said, who do you say? And Peter, being the spokesman, spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. There's a revelation from God that came on you, and now that you have that straight, I'm going to tell you what I'm about to do. I'm going to build my ecclesia, something they fully understood. I'm going to build my legislative body, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. He said, on this rock, 
Now, there's a lot of controversy about what that means. One of the clear meanings of that word, and I believe there's, there's a number of meanings to that, that statement. I believe that when Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, little rock, and upon this big rock, he was playing off of Peter's name and even referring to the call on his life because Peter was an apostle and the church is built upon the, 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 the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He was calling Peter into his destiny. Was he talking about his confession? Yes, I believe he was. He was saying that on this rock of your confession, this revelation is going to become a rock that it is the revelation upon which my church will be built. And he was also talking about a location. He was saying right here on this rock, you see this rock? There was a massive rock with a hole in it, and it was a cave, and that was known as the gates of hell. And Jesus intentionally said, this is where I'm going to build my legislative body. I'm going to go right into darkness. I'm going to go into the darkest places of the earth, and I'm going to establish something, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, Jesus, the first time he talks about what the church is to be, it was in reference to darkness. That we were God's answer to darkness that invades this earth. It wasn't for potlucks. Although that's fine. I'm not against that. Glory to God. Bring chicken. It's, it, there's nothing wrong with those things. But it's not just about fellowship. Most New Testament modern day believers, we think of the church as the community and relationships around Jesus. And there is that element. You can tie that into the writings of the epistles. But I'm telling you, the first volley in this thing was Jesus' statement at the gates of hell. And it was in reference, we are the answer to the sin that is invading this earth. That is why we're here. We are, yes, you know, some people say, well, the word ecclesia literally means the assembly. And so that's, that's what it means. It's just people gathering. No, it's more than that. It's not just this gathering. It's not just when believers hang out. You can have a monopoly party, but that's not church. Even if they're all believers. You can even talk in tongues when you get to buy boardwalk. But you're not, that's not church. It's not until you gather in His name for His purposes. Because we are the authoritative body and we've got to get this. Listen, when we come on Sunday mornings with our needs and the struggles and we look into the earth, just as Al was saying this morning, we watch the news and there's things that are troubling. But we have now convened as the ecclesia of heaven. When we come, we literally call heaven to earth. We convene the legislative body. And with authority, we begin to release the will of God into the earth. There's something that happens when we come together that doesn't happen when we're alone. And we need to understand that because we can come in and not leverage the awesome, fearsome authority and power delegated to us. And we just come in thinking it's a time to hear a preacher talk or sing some songs we like. When we don't realize we all have a role in this thing. We are coming in with the mind of Christ. And we gather in His name. And we convene His presence. Just as the kings of old would bring their mobile throne to the outposts of their kingdom. We are an outpost of heaven. And when we worship in His name, He comes with His mobile throne. And He dwells in our midst. And that's a big deal. When you feel His presence... His person has come into our midst to change human affairs on earth. It's not just so that we can have goosebumps, as much as I love that. He's come to do kingdom business. And we need to come with that, with our hopes up, our expectations up, our faith up, and our resolve up. We have come to impose the will of the king on human affairs. So when we come in here to worship, you need to come in with this mindset. You need to come in here and bring your, just like the priest. You know, there's a reason the priest would wear this breastplate and he had the gems that represented each of the tribes. And he would wear it on his breast, thus a breastplate. Why? He would have them on his heart. As a priest, a go-between. A priest would represent God to man, he'd come out and teach, give the word of the Lord, but then he'd go into the secret place, he'd go into the holy place, and he would represent man to God. 
He was a go-between. That's the idea of a priest. And we are an entire kingdom of priests. Every one of us. We all fulfill that role. We are kings and priests, Peter tells us. We are priests in the order of Melchizedek, who was a king-priest. And we come in with, we bear the names of our loved ones, our families, our community, our region. How big is your burden? How big is your metron? Wear it on your chest when you come into worship. Because we represent these people and we bring them before the throne. And when we're worshiping, we carry them before the throne on our heart. And that is a big deal. Things happen in this room when we gather. And it doesn't have to be in this room. But things happen when we gather in His name for His purposes. And it means something that Jesus, in launching this concept of the kingdom, the first time He mentions it, it's in reference to shutting down evil in the earth. It's not a coincidence. And it's not a coincidence the second time and the only other time we have recorded Jesus speaking about the church. It's in reference to dealing with evil in the church. The first time he says, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He went into one of the darkest cities on planet earth at that time to make that declaration. And I love it. I can imagine that the, the gates of hell shook, the pillars shook. The enemies, you know, their knees chattered and, and uh, they were, they, they, hell understood what he was saying much more so than many believers. And then two chapters later, Jesus says, if someone sins, go to him one on one. If he doesn't receive it, take another brother with you and try to win him over. If he doesn't receive it, take him before the ecclesia of God. And if he doesn't receive it there, turn him over and treat him as a pagan and a tax collector. My apologies to IRS state agents here this morning. You know, they were, they were the outcasts because they were Jewish people who partnered with Rome to oppress their own people. Jesus wasn't saying, you know, if someone works for the government, treat them like trash. He was, it was within the context of that situation. We see this same terminology in 2 Corinthians. I want to say it's like chapter 6. I, I, I don't remember, but in 2 Corinthians, no, in 1 Corinthians rather, Paul is dealing with a situation where there's a man sleeping with his father's wife. So it's his stepmother. And the believers are like, hey, we're living in grace because... Corinth was a church of great outpouring of spiritual gifts, but great carnality. And it was going to be, a, it was a train wreck waiting to happen. They had great power, but great carnality. And Paul came in to, to correct. And he said, listen, guys, I'm coming. He said, I know a lot of you say that, hey, he's, what, he's really heavy in his letters, but he's kind of a pipsqueak when he shows up. That's, they didn't use the word pipsqueak, even in the Greek. But you know what I'm saying. And he said, hey, I'll be in actions what I was in my words. We're going to deal with this because he understood that allowing sin to foment in the church, allowing it to take root, will pull the church off its mission. And so he, when Jesus talks about this, he says, he says, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And whatsoever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. The context of that statement is church discipline. He's saying that the church has the invested authority of God to bind and loose. And he says, literally, you can turn someone over. Paul picks up on this theme and we see an expression of that, an example of it in the Corinthian church when this guy is sleeping with his stepmother and Paul rebukes him sharply. He said, listen, even pagans would be embarrassed. They would be blushing over what's going on here. You need to deal with this and you need to deal with it quickly. He said, so this is all I'm going to tell you to do it. He said, when you are gathered together and the spirit of the Lord is present and I am with you in spirit. So he says, he gives the same terminology. You gather in his name, there he is, the spirit of the Lord is present. Then you deal with this matter. And he said, you turn him over to the devil for the destruction of his flesh. So that hopefully in the end, his spirit will be saved. 
Hopefully he'll be brought to repentance and come back in the fold. But regardless, you cannot allow this to remain in the church. One of the reasons that the church has not operated in the power and authority that God so desires to give them is because we don't operate in Matthew 18. And in failing to do so, we, we project, we misrepresent him. We misrepresent. Our presentation of him is not right. And so God tells us how to deal with sin in the church. So it's fascinating to me. And it begs the question, why? Why is it that when Jesus talks about the church both times, it's dealing with evil? Evil external and evil internal. He says, this is, the church is convened to deal with sin in its camp. And it's also convened to shut down the flow from the gates of hell. That's the only time Jesus uses this term, ecclesia. Now, we know the apostles elaborated much more, especially Paul, on what the church was. The book of Acts, Luke, wrote about the church. But when he uses it, he's talking about the groups of people. That he is, it, it, it's the same idea, but it's, he's referring to these specific groups of people that will gather to do business for the kingdom. And then Paul begins to elaborate even more. And Paul has several metaphors. He talks about, at, towards the sun, the church is the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. Beautiful metaphors. As the bride, we are his intimate lover. As the body, we are his expression, his hands and feet. We're the ones through which the work of God is done in the earth. Towards the father, we are the family of God. He wants many sons and daughters. The father wanted a family, the son wanted a bride. And the spirit desires a temple. And so we are a temple being erected to God. As believers, and we're living stones, Peter says. And all of these are metaphors to communicate different facets of this beautiful, phenomenal mystery called the church. And all of these things are true, and, and we need to understand those, but we also need to understand the foundation of this thing. When it was first laid out, Jesus set the foundation of our understanding. And we must not let go of this as the foundation. That the church is raised up to deal with evil, the effects of sin in the world. That is why we are here. We are the outpost of heaven. Heaven has invaded earth through the life of Jesus Christ. And now, he sets up outposts, just like the Romans would come in and they would invade a region and they would subject it through great authority, they are through great power, military might, they would subject the enemy and they would set up their government and they would establish an ecclesia. And from there, that ecclesia would begin to legislate according to the king and they would also teach the people. They would disciple the nation or the people groups or the culture. They would begin to shift the ideas of how life is supposed to work so that that place could no longer rebel against the kingdom of Rome. And so this is the idea for a church, that when Jesus comes, he came and gave his life, and then he comes into a region through the lives of believers. Jesus picks up on this when he talks about, he says, the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who takes yeast and works it into three lumps of dough until it leavens or it infiltrates and raises the whole lump. He says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast or leaven. Leaven was the first domesticated organism in ancient history. They harnessed this tiny little microscopic organism that starts as a single cell. And I don't know how they discovered that, but they found that when they would add it to dough, that the single cell would quickly multiply into many cells known as a yeast culture. And that culture would infiltrate every aspect of that dough until it rose. Years ago, I was, it was in 2008, God began to speak to me about the kingdom. I'd never really studied it to the extent that I did in 2008. And during that season, I walked into my daughter Elisa's room. She was watching the cooking channel and uh, salivating over some fresh thing someone was making. 
And there was a guy there with his white chef's coat on. And he had this, this uh, you know, stainless steel table. And he, he looked into the camera. He brought this big old piece of dough like this. Boom! Threw it on the table. And he said, this dough is from, it's well over 100 years old. It's from like 1865. And my first thought was, gross. He said, this is the famous San Francisco sourdough. And I did whatever I was going to do in her room and left. And then, a few days later, I'm studying Matthew 13, and it says, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman works into three lumps of dough. And I remembered the comment. And I thought, isn't that fascinating? That they took this living organism, this strain of life that was that was put in this lump of dough well over a hundred years ago, and now a hundred years later, people come from all over the world to be able to taste the same deposit of life that was put in that dough over a hundred years ago. And somehow, that, that strain of life remains all those years. And I thought, I wish I'd have watched the show. <laughs> and I thought, it's probably the cooking channel, because they're cooking food. But I thought, what's the show? What's the chances of ever seeing that again? But I so wish, I'd, I just knew that, that, was, that there was a nugget of revelation in that for me. A couple days later, I come into Lisa's room. There's the guy on the TV. This is 100 years old. This, you know, oh, man, I sat down and listened. And this is what he said. He said, every morning, we take out, I think it was one-sixth of the dough, a piece, and then... We lay it aside. It's called the starter. And then we take the other five-sixths and we make it into bread. And we sell it. People come from all over the world to eat our famous San Francisco sourdough. He said, then we take this other little lump, one-sixth, and we make some new dough. It's unleavened. doesn't have any yeast in it. And we work it in. We work it in. We work it in. And then we just lay it. Let it set overnight. And overnight, that yeast works its way into all the rest of the new dough. And by morning, what was in the one little piece has infected all the rest and it's risen. So I got on that great theological resource called Wikipedia. And I started studying, studying yeast. And that's where I found it was the first domesticated organism. And what they would do is they put that in there because what these little organisms do is they... Okay, I'm, I'm going to gross you out here. That these, little, these little organisms called yeast will eat the sugar in the dough, and then it emits a gas. I know. Okay. All right, so remember that next time you're eating some bread. You know the little pockets of air? That's where a lot of gas went, okay? So, I know. I, I'm so tempted to go down that road and get childish. Guys, we'll save that for the men's dinner in a couple weeks, Okay. But it, it emits a gas, and that's why the dough begins to rise. Because it transforms, fundamentally transforms the, the basic makeup of the dough. So it can never become unleavened again. It's leavened. It's a done deal. And so those little, those little yeast cells, a single cell becomes a yeast culture that infiltrates the whole thing. And Jesus said, that's the kingdom. That what God does is he takes a little single-celled believer and you come down there and you find the sugar <laughs> in your culture and you begin to find that which is sweet and you begin to feed on that thing and you begin to be an influence for the kingdom and you win another. You won't multiply and you create a nucleus called a ecclesia, a little outpost, a little kingdom culture within the pervading culture and then that little kingdom culture begins to reach into other aspects of the culture until the whole thing is leavened and it raises. You want to change society? Plant healthy, life-giving churches filled with people who understand that they carry the kingdom. And send them outside the church walls to be a kingdom individual so they can kingdomize every aspect of society. This thing of yeast. One other thing. This, this was fascinating. He, he said, these starters, he said, back in the gold rush, what the, what the miners would do is they would take a little piece of the starter and they would put it in their satchel so they could make some up in the mountains. So they'd have a little 
they'd take a little with them, come to the bakery, get the fresh bread. You know, Bethlehem was the place of bread and the bread of his presence. And it was, a, you know, bread represents the presence of God and the word of God. And they'd take a little with them, a little starter, so they could make more when they get up in the mountains. And they could always have a little piece of the bread from down in San Francisco while they're making it. But then he said this statement. He said, you know, if you stole a piece of this, which I won't let you do, he said. <laughs> he said, if you took this to New York, he said, you could make some bread with it because the yeast would be alive. He said, but the interesting thing is it wouldn't be San Francisco sour bread. He said, because the unique thing about bread and the yeast, what it does, the reason San Francisco sour bread is so famous is because of the unique tang and the sourness to it because the yeast interacts with the environment and there is this salt water environment coming off the ocean and the yeast always interacts and it takes on the flavor of the culture or the, not the culture, the location. I'm saying culture. The location. I'm getting to my application while I'm telling the story. The, the location that it's made. So here's the deal. You take a little starter and you go to Africa. I knew a missionary, he'd go to Africa, and uh, man, he saw a lot of people saved. But he also tried to Americanize them. He tried to have them wear suits and ties, and they just wouldn't have none of it. Matter of fact, the women wouldn't even wear shirts, you know, that was just their culture. And so finally, it was, it was kind of a, you know, awkward thing for him to be preaching to, you know, these natives in little strings and, and uh, no shirts. And so finally, he got this bright idea. This is a guy that Kathy and I we've taught at our school. He got this great idea. We're going to send to the United States and ask headquarters if they would send us T-shirts from the youth groups because they have these big national youth conventions and they all have these, these T-shirts they all wear. And he said, man, there's got to be extras. And they said, yeah. He said, send me 200. So they ship them over and, and he gets them. He's so excited. He got up in front of the church on Sunday morning. He said, listen, we now have uniforms for our church. Everybody's going to wear these shirts. And it said, Christ's ambassadors. He said, we're all going to wear these from now on because they're going to know we're from the Assembly of God Church. And so they all went home that night. He said, now come back tonight with your shirts on. And lo and behold, they did. The men walked in their shirts on, looking proud, and so did the women. But lo and behold, the women had cut two holes. And their breasts were still hanging out the two holes. It, uh, he would... The kingdom of heaven, the yeast will play off what's in the environment. It'll have a unique expression in the location. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't know what to do. I'm just, I'm just a delivery boy. It's just what happened. I'm not saying it was right or wrong. I'm just telling you. But a lot of that is culture. And so it took on a unique flavor in that unique location. And all of that is a picture of the kingdom of God. It's a parable. It's throwing alongside the physical so we can understand the spiritual. And so King Jesus came with great power. And at Pentecost, he poured it out on his children. And he continues to do so. And what the kingdom of God, what Jesus, his marching orders, he told his disciples, listen, go find sick people, pray over them, Heal them and then tell them the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the initial wave, the invasion is power, but then he sets up his authoritative body in the place of the ecclesia. And we are here to displace evil in the earth. And if we lose that, we have lost our identity. Now, all this stuff that Jesus, I mean, that Paul and Peter and the other disciples talk about, that's, that's valid. And that, that we can't discount that. Of course, that's scripture. But we must not talk about what the epistles say about the church to the negation of the foundation that Jesus laid. The law of biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, has a law called the law of first mention. And the law says that when... A, a, a concept is first mentioned, it crystallizes the meaning. And so you can never discount that original meaning in your further interpretation. You've got to refer to it. Now, there may be a utilization of that term uh, in such a way that they twist it to, to emphasize something, but you've got to take into consideration that first mention of that word. 
So when Jesus talked about the church, he said the church is here to uproot evil in the earth. You are here as God's solution to the fall of sin. We are here to undo, not just by leading individuals to the Lord and seeing them free from their own addictions, but we're also here to teach people how to do relationships well. So there can be an environment of the kingdom in their homes, in the workplace, in the city. The kingdom of God is the answer to corrupt government. So that all of a sudden, legislators at the Capitol begin to do business in a more honest, integrous way. So that businesses do uh, business with integrity. These are all manifestations of the kingdom. And we need to understand that because this is why we are here. And so when we talk about the kingdom, or the, the church rather, Jesus introduces it as his, his response to hell's invasion in the earth. And then also says we convene it to deal with the besetting sins in people's lives. And when he does that, he says, he sandwiches it, like we said last week, he sandwiches bringing people before the church and saying, hey, we love you, we're here to confront you and say, you can't do this stuff. It's going to destroy you, it's going to destroy your family, it's going to destroy the church, it's going to destroy our testimony, it's going to destroy your name in the community. And we get in, in front of people and we begin to plead with them. But sandwiched, that, that body of teaching is sandwiched between first Jesus saying he'll leave the 99 to go after the one. And then the unmerciful servant who was forgiven much but wouldn't forgive. And so what he's saying is when you confront, when you go and you plead with the brother and try to win him over... Do so with great mercy, understanding these two things. That King Jesus will leave the 99 to pursue the one. And then he talks about convening the 99 to plead with the one. And the implication is clear. Paul plays off of this in Galatians. I want to say it's chapter 6. might be chapter 5. I think it's chapter 6. He said, if any brother is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. Go and plead with him. Try to win him back over. In other words, who's, who's the spiritual ones? The ones who are going to go after the fallen one. And who's the one that should go after the, the fallen one? Those who have maturity. They're spiritual. One of the marks of maturity is our willingness to pick up a fallen brother. And not judge him. Not... not not just wash our hands of them, but we go and we restore him gently. And he says, be careful, lest you too be tempted. But that is one of the primary purposes of the church. To hold one another accountable and to keep us in sync with the purposes of God so that we don't wander off and go into la-la land. We need one another. We need to have transparent relationships in the church. Because I'm telling you, if you don't have brothers and sisters in your life that you are being transparent with and you are sharing your struggles with and if you aren't open to correction and someone saying, hey, I've noticed this about you and I'm concerned. If you're not open to that, you are going to get out. You're going to, at best, diminish the impact of your life and at worst, you can get off in la-la land. And I have seen great men and women of God get off into some crazy things and begin to justify their behavior by weird doctrine. Begin to teach things that just pacify their own, own conscience. And it's because they're not being open. So we need one another and it's one of the primary reasons for the body of Christ. Amen. So we need to understand the foundational purpose. We are the legislative body of heaven. And that we are here to push back evil in the earth. And sometimes that's the things in each other's lives. I'm not talking about being a Pharisee, going around, you know, judging everyone. But I am talking about if you have concern about a brother or sister, 
that you love them enough to go over to them and say, hey, I'm concerned about you. I don't know what's going on, but this is, this is what it appears to be. This is my concern. And we've got to be willing to do those things. Those are the most unpleasant things that I have to do. And they're the most unpleasant things that you need to do too, because it's not just for pastors. That we need to love one another enough to call each other on things. I was telling a, a minister recently, they went through a hard situation in, in this ministry and things got, went south. And I told them, listen, if, it's, if that is not a two-way street, if, if being willing, able to talk into one another's life is not a two-way street, if it's only the leaders that can talk into your life and you can't talk into them, run. Run. It's a two-way street. We need input from people's lives. There aren't, there, there, there's no all-wise, omniscient people this side of heaven, okay? There's not on that side either, except for Jesus. And so we need people to speak into our lives. And that's one of the primary purposes. So let me close with this verse, Ephesians chapter 4, where I wanted to start last week. Let me read you one verse, and then you can chase this down for yourself. Ephesians chapter 4. The progression of the kingdom, the yeast of the kingdom. One yeast cell becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16, and so forth. It multiplies. So it, what God does in you, then must move to God doing something between you. And if, if what God is doing in you doesn't begin to mature into what God is between, doing between us, then you are not maturing. You've gotten off into la-la land where you've got a lot of theory, but no, nothing real is happening in your life. You've got, to, you've got to begin to tie it in with the brother or sister because the way of God is to do it in you, between you, and through you. It's the church that God allows, that have people that God, allow God to do something in them. Then they allow them to do God to do something between them. And then God will do something through that kind of church. Okay? So look at Ephesians chapter 4. And let's look at verse 11. I'm going to read 11 to verse 16. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Why? The purpose of the fivefold. It, this is not the purpose of the church. It's the purpose of the fivefold. It's to prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So maturity... And the fullness of Christ is the end game. And it's all of us doing our jobs. And so God raises up leaders to teach us to do our job. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants. What, and he defines what that looks like. Infants are tossed back and forth by the waves. Blown here and there by every wind of teaching. And the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. One of the safeguards against getting led astray by false teaching. Is being in a body where everybody's doing their work. Because it's harder, to be, it's harder for a group of people that are all having a voice to be deceived. We don't have time to get into that. Look at verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. From him the whole body is being joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So he sums it up with this. God holds the body together by these ligaments. He, he refers that same word he uses earlier in the chapter where he says, keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. He's, he's saying, keep the peace. We go out, we, we, we guard the peace of the spirit. And that takes work. And that's what holds the body together as he, each part does its work. Why does he say this? Instead, speaking the truth in love. The way for us to mature, one dimension of us growing up together, you can't grow up alone. You've got to grow up with the body of people. And one dimension of that is we've got to learn to speak the truth in love. Brave communication. Being open and honest with one another. And sometimes that will rub each other wrong. 
But I'm telling you, conflict is the ground upon which deeper intimacy is built. You want to get closer to your spouse, get in a fight. And then work through it. And if you can get on the other side of that, you're closer than ever. Because conflict is the ground upon which intimacy is, is forged and you get deeper into relationship. So it means that we've got to begin to be, build these relationships and it's as we all grow together and that demands that you speak into my life and I speak into yours. And if you don't have anybody in your life that's doing this, find someone. Because your maturity, your destiny, your purpose for walking planet earth depends on it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Lord, I just bless each of these this morning. Lord, I ask, God, that you would continue to teach us about your church. Lord, I ask that you would help us to understand the fearsome, sobering authority and power that you've delegated to us as a body. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to utilize that. We'd leverage it for our king. Lord, that we would begin to exercise that under your lordship. And Lord, that you would use this body to change human affairs, Lord. That you would shape history by what goes on in this room. Lord, what goes on when we gather together in your name for your purposes. And Lord, I'm asking God that you would raise up healthy culture in this church. Lord, that we would speak the truth in love and we would call each other higher. That we would fight as hard for others' destinies as we would for our own, Lord. That we would become each other's cheerleaders and each other's coaches and we would pull each other into our destiny. And we wouldn't allow people to drift off without a fight. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.